Abraham Lincoln once said, I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had absolutely no other place to go. It is imperative that leaders pray. It's imperative that leaders pray. However, what's equally as important is that we pray for our leaders. As a pastor, allow me to share my heart with you. There's really no greater kindness that I can receive from you than to know that you pray for me regularly. There's no greater gift. You know, spoken encouragement is, is, is nice. What's nicer is to know that your people pray for you. This morning, I want to explore a, a prayer request with you, a prayer request that we see in the Psalms. King David, Israel's most renowned king, writes a psalm for the express purpose of teaching and training and encouraging his people to pray for him and his leadership. You could say it's a little bit of a selfish psalm, but he is, in no uncertain terms, inviting people that he governs, that he leads, to pray for him because he's desperate for their faithful prayers. Let's explore this prayer request together. Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 20. Psalm 20. In the Bibles we provided on your seats, you can find Psalm 20 on page 456. And if you're here today and you need a copy of the Bible, we would love to give you one. We mention this every Sunday. In the lobby, there's some hardback black Bibles on the bookcase closest to the restroom. Please take one of those if you need it. If you have a friend that needs one, uh, please take one for your friend as well. Now, before we read Psalm 20, uh, where have we been in our sermon series and where are we going? And so we've been in a mini-sermon series in the Psalms uh, called Strength Through Psalms. Psalms are a wonderful resource to God's people. Again, they cover the range of human emotion and human experience. No matter what you're walking through in your life, you can be sympathized with, identified with by reading the Psalms because the psalmists, God's people of old, have walked through similar things to what you're walking through right now. So we glean strength through the Psalms. Uh, so we covered Psalm 18 on August 27th. We covered Psalm 19 last Sunday, and this is the, the end of this little mini-series in the Psalm, Psalm 20, three consecutive Psalms. Next Sunday, the 17th, we'll start a two-semester sermon series covering the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus' wonderful sermon. We're going to unpack it just bit by bit. So we'll take uh, probably 20, 25 Sundays, fall and spring semesters, and we'll go through the Sermon on the Mount. Our, our practice, if you're new here to Beacon, our practice is to preach through large portions of the Bible, books of the Bible, letters in the Bible, alternating Old and New Testaments as a way to kind of see the comprehensive work of God across history that culminates in Jesus Christ. And so that's where we've been and where we're headed. Let's look to Psalm 20. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. 
May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. There's lots of different kinds of psalms, categories of psalms in the Psalter. That's the songbook of God's people or the 150 psalms that we find in the middle of our Bibles. There are psalms of thanksgiving. There are psalms of lament. There are also what is known as royal psalms. This is a royal psalm that focuses on the king, the Davidic king, the king in the lineage of David. And so this is a royal psalm. It is all about the Davidic king praying for God's king, God's leader among Israel. And it's a highway to Jesus Christ because where the Davidic lineage culminates is Jesus Christ. And so these royal psalms are wonderful. All of the Bible finds its interpretive center in Jesus Christ. The royal psalms make it really easy for us. They're highways to Jesus Christ, the Davidic king, the culmination, the climax of the kingship. So different kinds of psalms. This is a royal psalm. And there's two parts to it that I want to unpack with you. Two-part stru two structure here. First is we see a prayer for the mission of the Davidic king. A prayer for the mission of the Davidic king. And then secondly, we see confidence in the victory of the Davidic king. Confidence in the victory of the Davidic king. So first, a prayer for the mission of the Davidic king. We see this in verses 1 through 5. Let's look together, just reread these, scan these verses. David writes this prayer, this template for his people to pray for him. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now you're going to see a pronoun, you, your, the second person pronoun throughout those five verses, five, six times. All of them are in the singular, you singular. A, a particular person is in view here. So you have this prayer template that David is writing for people in the collective to pray for a singular person. So David's writing this psalm, this prayer template, to pray for a singular person, the Davidic king himself, those who follow in his lineage, and ultimately culminating in Jesus Christ. Let's look at the finer details. So in verse 1, 
David writes, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Trouble, the idea here is anguish, distress, heartache, like big, big problems, which David knew all too well. David had about a 40-year reign, and it's estimated that in those 40 years, maybe, maybe he had three years of peace. He was welcomed into his reign on the run from Saul. He then ran from the Philistines in their opposition, and then from his own sons, Absalom and Amnon. He constantly knew trouble, distress, anguish, heartache. You see it throughout the Psalms as he's pouring out his heart to God in the midst of distress. It was no cakewalk kingship. It was marked by hardship. He knew trouble all too well. Yet, at the end of his life, before he passes his kingship to his son Solomon, here's what his analysis is. As he surveys his 40-year reign, he says, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, same word as trouble, adversity, distress, same word here in Psalm 20. As the Lord lives, I testify that he has redeemed my soul out of every trouble, every adversity. What, a, what an analysis at the end of a long life of hardship. The Lord has delivered me out of every single one. Do you believe that, church? He's faithful. He's faithful. The prayer continues. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. What's in a name? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and they are safe. Proverbs 18, verse 10. Name implies a person, a reputation, a character. And when speaking of God, that is power and might trustworthiness. The name of the Lord, the name of the God of Jacob will protect you. The name of God represents power and might, something that you can trust in in the time of trouble. His reputation is being unveiled and displayed here. The title for God here, the God of Jacob, is also very strategic. You know who else knew a lot of trouble in addition to David? Jacob. Just read Genesis and see the trouble that Jacob got himself into many times. Some of it was not his fault, but he knew trouble just like David did. On the run from his brother Esau, trying to untangle the wicked scheming of Uncle Laban, constantly in trouble, constantly in distress. Yet it's his God, the God of Jacob, who delivered Jacob from all of them. So the reference to the God of Jacob is a reference to a God who helps his people who are in trouble. It's strategic that God references him. God is a God that helps people in trouble. Believe it. Many of us are in trouble right now. Trouble at work, trouble in the family, trouble in raising kids, trouble in finances, trouble in the neighborhood, trouble in conflict. What is it for you? Do you believe in the God of Jacob who has power in the midst of his people's trouble. The God of Jacob is our fortress and ever-present help in times of adversity. Verse 2, the prayer goes on. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. 
there's parallelism here. The Psalms are filled with parallelisms. One of the ways is what we call synonymous parallelism, where you say the same thing twice over. Sometimes it's contrastive parallelism. This is synonymous. May the Lord help you from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. That's two ways of saying the same thing. May God help you, support you, come to your aid from his holy habitation in Zion, Mount Zion, or his sanctuary, the temple, which resided on the temple mount there, Zion. May God help you. How? By mediating his presence to you. Why did ancient Israel delight in the pilgrimage to Jerusalem? They did them three times a year. Why did they delight in that? Because they were going to be in the presence of the Lord their God on the temple mount. It was a delight to them. God's people find peace, find power through the presence of the Lord. And praise God, we on this side of the cross, on this side of Pentecost, how does God mediate his presence here and now? This gives sense to what Jesus says in John chapter 16. It is better, my disciples, it's better, my friends, that I go and depart from you. And the disciples are like, how could it ever be better? We want to be with you all. Because if I go, the Holy Spirit will come. The Comforter will come. And it's better because the presence of Jesus now is everywhere where Christians are. It's better because the Holy Spirit mediates the presence of the living God wherever Christians are. We find peace, we find power in the presence of God. And this side of the cross, this side of Pentecost, we find it through the Holy Spirit. David found it by going to the temple. That's the presence of God in the Old Testament. This prayer for the king continues in verse 3. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. This is the language of worship of devotion expressed to God through sacrificing meat offerings, whole burnt offerings, expressing devotion to God and obedience to God following his prescribed manner of having right relationship with him. How did sinful Israel have right relationship with God? Through offerings, through sacrifices, burnt offerings at the temple offered to them by the priest made right relationship with them. It was a temporary means of right relationship so that a sacrifice had to be offered over and over and over again because the blood of boat, go, go, bulls and goats cannot possibly take away sin, but they were all a shadow that points to the substance of Christ because he is the once and for all sacrifice that fully takes away our sins. Sacrifice is the only pathway to right relationship with God. Hebrews 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, and it's the shedding of blood in the Old Testament that gave way to the ultimate shedding of blood at the cross. But this is a prayer here that the sacrifices offered on behalf of David would be acceptable and pleasing to God, that he would have right relationship with his God, forgiveness of his sins. What a beautiful prayer to hear your people praying. Oh God, may the sacrifices that you've ordained be acceptable for this king. Forgive his sins. 
Cleanse him that he might lead faithfully. In verse 4, it seems that David is asking for a blank check. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May David's, the Davidic king's, heart's desire be granted and all your plans, O king, be fulfilled. Well, this is not a blank check in that you're going to grab for money and for land and, uh, and squeezing people and oppressing people. That's not what this is. Uh, this is a prayer with the heart of the purpose of God uh, for the continued purpose and mission of God through the Davidic king, through the king's people, granting good requests that are in accord with God's will. People who are in right relationship with God will ask right things of God. We just saw the forgiveness part through sacrifice of offerings. People who are in right relationship with God will ask right things of God. So it's not a blank check for greed. It's, it's a blank check for good things that we ask because we're in right relationship with God. Author and pastor Matthew Henry once wrote, those who make it their business to glorify God may expect that God will one way or another gratify them. Let me read that again. Those who make it their business to glorify God may expect that God will one way or another gratify them because those requests are made in keeping with the character and the glory of God, and God delights to hear those requests and to answer them in his timing. Pray in accordance with the will and the purposes of God. Pray prayers that please God. Seek him, his will, his word, his ways, and it will satisfy you. It will gratify you. The prayer then begins to anticipate victory in verse 5. May we shout for joy over your salvation, and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Have you been to the new restaurant in Boston, right by the TD Garden? You know what it's called? Banners. Why is it called that? Because Boston is a city of champions, right? You go to the garden. You see these banners, Celtics, Bill Russell, one after the other, after the other. You see them at the airport. You go to Logan. I love going to Logan. And you see all the Bill Russell Celtics one. You see the Bobby Ord. You see, you see the Bruins ones. You see the Tom Brady ones. They're, they're everywhere. You see the Red Sox ones. Banners, the emblem of victory, the way we display our prowess in a sport. Well, in the same way, this is the king's military victories. Let the, the king's emblem, the emblem of Israel, be displayed, the victory of Israel. It's a sign, an emblem, showcasing victory. May we shout for joy over your victory, O king. How does that victory come? Notice how. Through the name of the Lord, in the name of our God, we will set up those banners. In the name of our God, we'll put up the next banner. That's the power supply to get the next banner up of victory. It's the name of the Lord because the name is the power. It's the reputation. It's the character. Early, early on in David's career, he learned this. 
One of the most well-known stories in David's life, David battles Goliath. Notice what he says about the name of the Lord. 1 Samuel 17, 45 and 46. David said to Goliath the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you, how? In the name of the Lord Almighty, the, the Lord of angel armies, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. What confidence did David have that the Lord would deliver Goliath, who was much taller, much stronger, much better trained? The name of the Lord was on his side, and it was Goliath who was spurning the name of the Lord. Goliath is in trouble, and David knows it. He's trusting in the name, not just a name, we're not just kind of incanting or just saying a name. We are trusting in the name, in the character that that name re represents. The battle belongs to the Lord, is what David's saying. We will trust in him, in his name, and what he, he represents. Your spiritual battles in this life, fighting sin, opposing evil, working through conflict, those battles belong to the Lord. They only can be fought rightly in his strength, trusting in his name, in his power, in his goodness. Your spiritual battles in this life can only be fought rightly by trusting in the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. We see this growing confidence of the victory now in the next section of the psalm. So, First, we see a prayer for the mission of the Davidic king. Second, we see confidence in the victory of the Davidic king. This growing, confident trust in the ultimate outcome of the mission of the Davidic king. Verse 6, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. His holy heaven, this place of exaltation, his place of power and enthronement, he's coming to answer and to intervene on behalf of his king. That's the imagery here. And he's saving how? He's saving by the might of his right hand. Psalm 89, verse 13, we see this mighty hand. You have a mighty arm, O God. Strong is your hand. High is your right hand. This is also Exodus language. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, the Lord delivers his people from bondage in Egypt through Pharaoh, through the Red Sea. A mighty hand and an outstretched arm. It's the strong arm of the Lord that delivers, that provides salvation for his people. That's what they're calling on here. The saving might of his right hand. Next in this psalm, we see two things to trust in and the outcome of those. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Lots of temptations for David to trust in lesser things in his reign and in his leadership. Lots of temptations for us in this day to trust in lesser things. I had a professor one day who said, when you see chariots in the Bible, you need to think tanks now. Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, some trust in fighter jets, some trust in tanks. It's trusting in modern military technology to find your security. And the psalmist is just showing the folly of that. 
There are lots of lesser things to trust in this life that cannot provide you security. What are they for you? What are you trusting in? What lesser thing are you putting your hope in? Your education, your relational prowess, your charisma, your winsomeness, your financial resources, your job. What is it? What lesser thing do you trust in to navigate through life and to face problems? Some trust in horses, some in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. There's only one right place to place your confidence, your hope, your trust. It's the name of the Lord. Is a strong tower. The righteous run into it, and they're safe. Trust in the Lord, not lesser things that you're going to be tempted to every day of your life. Trust in the Lord. And the end result of what we trust in, verse 8, they collapse and fall, those who trust in chariots and horses, but we rise and stand upright. Two outcomes of our trust, right? You trust in lesser things, anything apart from the Lord, collapse. Uh, the word here is complete overthrow, to crumble down on your knees. That's the outcome of those who trust in anything but the Lord. There's a better outcome, though. We rise and we stand up, upright, those who trust in the Lord. What a better outcome. Those who trust in the Lord, who are on his side, will stand firm in the day of trial, will be upheld by him. So can I ask you, as you think about your life, who do you swear allegiance to? Whose side are you ultimately on? Who are you trusting in, in your heart of hearts? Do you trust in yourself to navigate through the thorns of life? Do you trust in resources? Do you trust in friendships? I mean, there are good gifts that God gives us, but they're not worthy of our trust and of our hope. Only God, when you're stripped bare, Abraham Lincoln, all I could do is get on my face because I had nowhere else to go. What do you trust in when you're desperate in life? There's only one who's worthy of your trust, who can sufficiently uphold you and cause you to stand in the day of trouble. Whose side are you on in this life? In verse 9, we see a final plea. O oh Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. A final prayer for the Davidic king and a confident hope that the Lord will answer his people when they call on him, when we call on him. A confidence that he hears us, that he will respond in a way that's good for us and glorifying to him. Confidence is exuding throughout the latter portion of this song. Now, the ultimate Davidic king, the ultimate destination of Psalm 20 is the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Everything is leaning forward to Jesus, the ultimate anointed one, the ultimate king. And the irony is, it's Jesus, the ultimate Davidic king, he was the one who was seemingly forsaken in his earthly life. What does he do in the Garden of Gethsemane? It seems that his prayers fall on deaf ears. Yet it was all a part of the plan of the Father to use his humi humiliation and his weakness, his lowliness, to deliver us, his people. Jesus bore our punishment for us 
the Father turned his face away so that he could turn his face to us. Jesus is the Davidic king who experienced uh, an, an abandonment, a, a forsakenness temporarily so that he could fulfill his Father's good plan to deliver you and I from our sin. It was the Father's good plan. In the great battle of Christ and his satanic enemies, it may seem that the battle was being lost for a time. But friends, rest assured, based on the authority of God's word, based on the authority of Psalm 20, that the outcome is sure. The king, his truth will triumph. His reign will be forever. No one will strip him of his crown. Robert Morrison, a 19th century Scottish missionary, once wrote, the desire of the Messiah's heart in the salvation of millions of perishing sinners was granted to him and all his counsels, his purposes, his plans have succeeded and shall ultimately triumph over all the opposition of earth and hell. Nor shall one petition for himself or for his church fall to the ground ineffectual. All shall be heard and all shall be answered. Each member of his redeemed family shall share his inalienable part in the intercession of his Lord. Friends, keep praying for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ to roll forward and advance in this life because the outcome is sure. Not one of your prayers is going to fall on deaf ears. All of them will be answered as we pray for the work of the ultimate Davidic king, Jesus Christ, that is ongoing, that we get to share in and be a part of. The outcome is sure. Not one prayer request is going to fall on deaf ears. Keep praying for the king's work. Keep engaging in the king's work. And if you're not on the king's side, what an opportunity to trust in this merciful king who prayed for you, who sweat drops of blood for you because he's merciful and loves sinners and desires to save you. Let us put our trust in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy to us in giving us your word to read and understand, Lord, to preach and to receive. Father, help us to be a, a praying people who pray for our leaders in this life, who pray for the work of our ultimate leader, our ultimate king, Jesus Christ, as it continues to unfold. Though it looks bleak sometimes, it looks like we are on the wrong side. Continue your work. Your full reign is coming. Every tear will be wiped away. Every bit of sin will be eradicated. Lord, we long for that day. Until then, sustain us by your grace, by your spirit that is alive and well in your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.